Well, I realize this is a Sunday close to July the 4th, and customarily on such a Sunday, I will preach a sermon on patriotism or America or the freedom we have in Christ or some related theme to uh, what we enjoy as Christians in America. But you know what happened two weeks ago with the Supreme Court and uh, some things that we need to talk about as a church family and as Christians in America. And how are we to respond to the decisions made in the Supreme Court? The sermon's entitled, Being Christian in a Pagan World. I've been pondering that. I was at children's camp this week and working through a lot of these things in my own mind and clarifying my own thoughts and hopefully giving you something to think about today. Because our environment, our society, our nation, whether we like it or not, is changing. And Christians that have enjoyed a favored majority in our nation are becoming less and less uh, influential. And, and we need to be aware of that and how to deal with it as Christians. The passage is 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. Because Peter is writing to persecuted Christians in Jerusalem. And he gives them good advice for Christians of any age living in a society that neither values nor respects um, Christian morals and Christian values. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. Peter writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, that you may declare the wonderful deeds of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, once you were no people, but now you are God's people. Don't ever forget that. You are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I beseech you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. Maintain good conduct among the Gentiles. Gentiles just meant any non-believer, any pagan so that in case they speak against you as wrongdoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That verse sounds amazingly similar to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Do good to those who persecute you, whatever, and, and whatever you do, give glory to God, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let's bow together. Father, let my words bring glory to your name. Help me to be faithful and true to your word of scripture. And help us as Christians to be bold in what we believe and loving in how we express it. That our influence may increase and our number may increase. And those who love you and believe in you and follow you and live holy lives will increase. Help us hold high the cross of Christ. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, two weeks ago, we saw more drastic changes in our nation and the Christian principles upon which it was founded than ever before in the 239-year history of America. We saw the legalization declared of government-sponsored and government-controlled socialized medicine. We saw the legalization declared of homosexual civil marriages. 
To me, it became a sign that Christianity is no longer the moral majority in America. We are becoming the silent minority, which means we may well no longer enjoy a favored status in America and that God may well withdraw his hand of blessing from our nation, which he said he would do. If we do not honor him, he will withdraw his hand of blessing. But it doesn't have to be all bad, and I don't like messages that are gloom and doom and people wringing their hands and just saying, ain't it awful? I think there is a message of hope here because this is nothing new for Christianity. The 239 years we have enjoyed the freedoms here in America are relatively young. 10% of, our, of Christian history. So let's take a look at the first 90% and gain some perspective. And to do so, we've got to go back to the very beginning to the Roman Empire. I don't like being tied to my manuscript this morning, but I've got a lot of facts and figures I don't want to mess up. The Roman Empire was a pagan environment where Christian values and beliefs were not known or respected. Corruption was pervasive in business. Morality was at an historic low. Divorce was common to the point that marriage had become passé. It was a dirty and filthy environment riddled with disease and epidemics. Life expectancy in the Roman Empire was about half what it is in America today. There were few families that had both parents living at home, and few parents saw all their children grow into adulthood. Modern methods of birth control were unknown, so abortions were frequent. Medical procedures were primitive. No one knew what bacteria or germs were, so infections were common. And so women who had abortions often became infertile or died, and so the birth control of choice became infanticide. They simply killed the babies they did not want. They would determine the gender of the child at birth. If it was a male baby, they would keep it. If it was a female baby, they either took it down to the seashore or took her to the woods where she would die of exposure. Epidemics swept throughout the city so often that cities' populations were wiped out by measles or smallpox or the bubonic plague. So the Roman government simply transported tens of thousands of people from the different parts of the empire into those cities and repopulated them. And that resulted in different languages being spoken and people unable to communicate with each other and racial prejudice arising. Rome was unusual as an ancient empire in that for a while it tolerated different religions. For a long time, Christianity fell under the umbrella of Judaism. Judaism had protection, so Christianity enjoyed a similar protection for Rome. But there was a date when all of that suddenly changed. It was July 19th, A.D. 64. July 19th, A.D. 64, the city of Rome burned. It burned for three days. And just as the flames were dying out, it suddenly flared up again and burned for another three days, and tens of thousands of homes were destroyed and thousands of lives were lost. It was rumored that Nero, who was Caesar at the time, stopped the firefighters from putting out the fires. And then it was even rumored that his soldiers actually started the fires, kind of an urban renewal program that went terribly awry. When it got out of hand, Nero's political base began to erode in the Senate 
And so he had to look for someone to blame, and he blamed Christians for the fire. They were a handy scapegoat. Christians were gathered. Many were crucified. Some had animal skins sewn on them and thrown into the arenas with wild animals. And the Roman historian Tacitus even recounted that some Christians were dipped in pitch, impaled on long poles, and set on fire in Nero's gardens to give him light as he strolled through in the evening hours. About three years later, Peter wrote this to the church in Jerusalem, a couple years before he was later crucified himself. Abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. Maintain good conduct among the Gentiles, unbelievers, so that in case they speak against you as wrongdoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So this was the environment in which Christianity was taking root. How were they to respond? How were Christians to live in such a corrupt an evil environment. Well, let me tell you what they did. Christian husbands and wives were faithful to each other. Christians avoided divorce. Christians treated women with respect and dignity. Christians loved and kept female babies. As a matter of fact, the Christians would scour the surrounding woods looking for abandoned girls and along the seashore and they would bring them into their homes and raise them as their own. Because there were so few women in the Roman Empire, they were getting married younger and younger, some as young as 11 or 12 years of age, but Christians were different. The church taught that women should not marry until they were adults and when they were married, they should be virgins. And that's when single Roman men began to notice how many women were Christians. And the Roman men started coming to church by the tens of thousands and were converted to Christianity. When the plagues came and wiped out populations in cities, the Christians, when everybody else was moving out, Christians were moving in at the risk of their own lives to take care of those who were sick and had been abandoned by their own families. So when their family members returned six months later after the plague had subsided, they discovered the family they left behind had been converted to Christianity because they had found a love that they had not found even in their own family. Over and over again, Christians were living holy lives that were gradually transforming the Roman Empire and through it the world. We know at Pentecost there were a little over 3,000 Christians in the world. That was about 17 thousandths of a percent of the world's population at that time, virtually insignificant. But by living consistent, godly lives, the numbers of the Christians began to increase. And by the year A.D. 350, there were 33.9 million Christians in the Roman Empire, representing 56.5% of its population. Constantine, when he became emperor, had a Christian majority. But he didn't change the empire to become Christian. Holy living had gradually done it for three and a half centuries. 
They lived godly lives as aliens in a strange world as Peter instructs us. They abstained from sinful desires and lived the kind of lives among pagans so that the pagans saw their good deeds and glorified God and were converted themselves. So what about today? We hear so many complaints about living in America today and how it's changing its moral underpinnings and its Christian foundation. Well, let me tell you something, folks. I'm going to tell you something that you don't want to hear because it's not pleasant. But if America is becoming less Christian, it's our fault. It is our fault. This great nation was built upon Christian principles and it's losing its distinctive heritage and it is our fault because evangelical Christians are no longer in the majority. We have forsaken our calling. We have lost our influence. Our lives and lifestyles have become no different from the rest of the world. We have ceased being the salt and the light that Jesus commanded us to be. C.K. Chesterton once quipped that the problem with Christianity is not that it has been tried and found wanting. The problem is that it has been found too difficult and left untried. But don't get discouraged because the immorality we see today is not new. There have, there's always been drug abuse and corruption and pornography rampant in our society, even in America. I did some research and 125 years ago, are you familiar with a drug called laudanum? It is an opium extract. And it was so pervasive 125 years ago in America that it was said that at any one time over half the population of America was stoned on any given day. It was so prevalent that the Sears Roebuck catalog sold syringes by mail. Our problems are not new. The problem is that we are losing our influence. The challenges have always been with us. Despite the turn of events in our highest courts in recent weeks, there is hope because there are multitudes of born-again Christians all over this great nation. Some of them are in influential levels in high government. Years ago, 90% of Americans claimed some Christian affiliation. I find that hard to believe, but that was a survey. And today, churches where Bible is taught and where holiness is lived out, those churches are flourishing and growing. And the churches that are growing are those where there is a commitment to the truth of God's word and the authority of Jesus Christ. And it is a truth and an authority that we must not compromise at any time. The Bible tells us to respect our elected leaders and obey its laws unless and until those come into conflict with the laws of God. And when they do and we are forced to choose between the laws of man and the word of God, friends, we have no choice. We have to obey the word of God, the law of God. It is unchanging. It is timeless. And I have said time and again, when God tells us to do something, it's because he loves us and wants the best for us. When he tells us not to do something, it's because he knows it will do us harm. And he's trying to protect us. And so when God tells us that marriage is between one man and one woman, 
It's because he knows that's his best. And he desires his best for his people. There was a New York Times editorial a few years ago that said that evangelical Christians are shaping U.S. foreign policy toward righteousness. And if today is an average day, in China there will be 32,000 new Christians today. In Africa, south of the Sahara, where the Muslim influence wanes, there will be 20,000 new followers of Christ. And in South America, there will be 10,000 new Christians on a daily basis. So much so that China and South Africa and South America are now sending missionaries to America, to North America, to help us win back our nation for God. The Christian faith is growing where Christians are witnessing where they are living holy lives. So much so that some are predicting that the 21st century may well see one of the greatest spiritual awakenings in all of history. Oh, I hope so. I pray so. I pray that people realize what we are losing in our nation and will fall on their knees and cry out to God and say, God, forgive us. Help us to live the kind of lives that will influence others toward you. Because there are Christians all over the world who are living holy lives and are having an enormous impact on their society. In America, though, there are those who say that our particular brand of Christianity is a mile wide and an inch deep. I don't think so. I watched with a broken heart three weeks ago what Dylan Roof did in Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. He walked into a Bible study where they welcomed him with open arms and then after an hour of listening to God's word stood up and pulled out a 45 and began shooting. But did you see the church's response? Did you see what the church did? It was amazing love and forgiveness as one by one families of victims who had been killed stood up and said, we forgive Dylan Roof, we love him in Jesus' name. They forgave the killer in the senseless brutality and the violence that he introduced into a Bible study and prayer meeting in God's house. And do you realize what has happened as a result of that? We have not seen the racial strife and unrest in Charleston that we have seen in other cities across America. And you want to know, I think it's because of the godly influence that that one church had on that entire city. It wasn't covered very much in uh, national media. And it won't be because it doesn't create enough controversy or stir enough conflict or boost ratings. But how powerful that church's witness was in Charleston. If Christians want to make a difference in America, it's going to have to be without the help of mainstream news outlets. It will have to happen one person at a time, one person living a holy life, reaching out and caring and loving for another and telling him or her about Jesus and then helping them grow in their relationship with him. And we can do it. We can do it. So when someone asks you what you think about the Supreme Court rulings, feel free to disagree, but do so in love. 
When asked about anything controversial, feel free to express your opinion, but do so in Christian love. This is not a message of gloom and doom. I hate that kind of talk. People wringing their hands and saying, ain't it awful? I don't like that. And if you don't hear me say anything else this morning, hear me say this. This is something I've been mulling over in my mind the last two weeks. The light shines the brightest when it is the darkest. The light shines the brightest when it is the darkest. And the Christian church never grew any faster, never reached any more people than it did in those first three centuries when it was facing its fiercest opposition and persecution. When the Christian church is persecuted, Christians boldly stand up and say, I believe in Jesus. We looked at a parable a few Wednesday nights ago that some of you may have missed. But it comes from Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30. About a man who sowed some wheat, and then in that wheat field, some weeds began popping up right alongside the wheat. And his servants asked him if he wanted them to go in and uproot the weeds. And the householder replies, no. Because in so doing, you'll probably uproot some wheat too. Leave them both alone until the harvest. And then the harvesters will come in and they will gather the weeds into bundles and burn them. And the wheat will be gathered and brought into my barn. That's what's happening today. Let there be no doubt. Wheat and weeds are growing up alongside one another. And sometimes, honestly, there seems to be more weeds than wheat. Muslims are planning to dominate the world within a few generations by having more babies than everyone else, and they are on track to do it. The radical wing of Islam is spreading quickly because its message of hate and fear. And people are buying into it. Jesus tells us that love is stronger than hate. And fear not, the wheat will outgrow the weeds. So don't worry about pulling up the weeds. He'll take care of that one day. But what he does tell us to do is you get busy sowing the wheat. Just sow the wheat and let God take care of the harvest. And God will separate the weeds out at that time into bundles and burn them. So don't you worry about the weeds. Let's focus on what we can do. Let's get involved in the political process. Many people have said that the presidential election of 2016 will be the most important election in our lifetimes. And I think that's true. Get involved and express your opinion lovingly and live a godly life that will draw other people to Christ and sow some wheat so that who knows, maybe one day the wheat will actually drown out the weeds. It happened in the first three centuries because Christians refused to live like everybody else was living. They lived according to the dictates of God's holy word. May God help us do the same today. Amen.
Bow with me. God, you have blessed our nation. You have provided us with resources and opportunities and freedom so much so that I'm afraid we're using those freedoms to destroy ourselves because we have not been faithful to your word. And we who believe in you have not lived holy lives that have drawn other people to you. And so when people see us in a crowd, we don't really distinguish ourselves as being the salt and light that you have called us to be. So forgive us. Forgive us, God, as a nation. Do not withdraw your hand from us. But help us be your people. We call out on your name. We turn from our wicked ways. God, heal our land. Be our God. And help in God we trust but be more than a slogan on a coin. To be written in our hearts and in our nation's highest halls. And help us to live it and to trust you. 239 years you have blessed us. Let us not see it end in our generation. But help us sow the wheat and infiltrate the weeds until they are choked out and are no more. Jesus, we bow before you. And we look forward to that day when you come in power and every knee will bow and tongue confess that you are Lord to the glory of God, your Father, our Father. In his name we pray. Amen.